We're well, hello. Hello and welcome to the latest of Practico's Cost Chat Between Friends. Um, the friends start with the usual suspects of myself, Jeremy Morgan, retired costs barrister and consultant to Practico, and Andy Ellis, the managing director of Practico. And our guest this time, uh, another old friend, is Roger Malu QC, um, who needs no introduction, is the, the usual thing that one says in these cases, but he's fresh from a, a victory in the Supreme Court, um, which I was pleased to see. But the other thing I was pleased to see about uh, Roger and his chambers is that they have elected Nicholas Bacon as head of chambers, which is um, certainly a step forward for cost council, used to be regarded. Cinderella would actually be rather polite for how we were generally regarded. Um, <laughs> but big step forward for a, a major set to, uh, to elect uh, a cost barrister as their head of chambers. So congratulations to Nick and um, to everyone in, in Four New Square for, for that excellent decision. Moving on to what we're going to talk about, um, there, there's not been a huge amount in terms of interesting uh, decisions to, to report to you. So we thought we'd have a chat on more general themes. Um, the first is the dreaded Solicitors Act. Um, does the Solicitors Act need reform? And if so, in what direction might that reform go? Um, the next topic was going to be the extension uh, proposed by the government of uh, fixed recoverable costs uh, beyond the existing limits and to and beyond the existing cases. Um, the third thing was DBAs. Um, are we seeing more of them now? And uh, is that a good thing? A very brief uh, touch possibly on the recent CJC consultation on the uh, pre-action protocols where there's a mention of costs which we'll um, just touch on, but it, it's very briefly mentioned there. And finally, we might, if we've got time, look at the effect of opening up um, post-pandemic, uh, if indeed there is opening up, because I see that uh, new restrictions are being imposed in the UK. I, I, I speak from Italy, where we've been living with restrictions for some time now. Um, but uh, with that brief introduction, over to you, Roger. Oh, morning, Jeremy. Yeah, morning, Andy. Um, uh, thanks for that introduction. Um, yes, well, I mean, if, you're, if we're starting with the Solicitors Act, then um, I think uh, anybody who's heard me talk on this before probably is well aware that I take the view that it's past its best, long way past its best, um, and doesn't really serve a proper function, whether it's for solicitors or consumers or clients, whatever we're going to call them, um, and that it's, it's long overdue for reform. That's it. <laughs> That, well, that, that, that's, I mean, that's the headline. I mean, if, in terms of why, I, I think we only need to look at the cases to see why. It, it, it seems to me to be, frankly, faintly ridiculous that the main, the main piece of legislation that's meant to govern the, the relationship between solicitors and their clients spends all its time in the appellate court with people just trying to work out what it means. Not, not in court with people getting remedies or arguing about what the remedies are but arguing about whether something is or isn't a statute bill, arguing about what the effect is of the time limits, arguing, I mean, we've got cases coming up in the Court of Appeal next year uh, about Section 74 of the Act and what it actually means. I mean, that we're still here, although the Act notionally is, what, nearly 50 years old in, in practice, that the similar provisions have been there for over 100 years. 
And yet we're still here just trying to work out what it actually means with both solicitors and clients spending huge sums of money arguing about legal technicalities, which is wonderful for, for people like me and Cost Council um, to be arguing these interesting points of black letter law. But, but I struggle to see that it's in, in the interests of either the solicitors or the clients, really. If, if I can um, be devil's advocate, because I'd, I'd love the solicitors at cases when I was in practice. Um, and I noticed I hadn't remembered that um, the first uh, law on the subject, the first statute on the subject, went back to 1729. So that's nearly 300 years ago. And it's basically the same format as you have now. So, <laughs> yeah, there might be um, something in what Roger says. Um, but there is an, an issue, isn't there, with solicitors? Um, because if you abolished the entire machinery, you'd end up with a system where a solicitor sends in a bill to say, I've done so much work at so many, so many hours at such and such a rate, uh, and you've got to pay me that. And the court would then not be in a position to assess the reasonableness of the hourly rates because they would be fixed by contract and be very hard to go behind those. Um, and on the question of hours, would struggle a bit to, to look into the amount of time spent. And most judges would probably not want to do that and would just say, well, that's what the solicitors build. Um, and it would be a heavy burden on the client somehow to show that the solicitor had, uh, had acted unreasonably. Um, so isn't there a, a case for at least some um, mechanism whereby an independent authority looks particularly at hours spent, because that is a difficult issue, and possibly also um, rates charged, um, before a solicitor can get a judgment in his or her favour. Yeah, well, I, I can see some force in that point for, for the reasons that, that you give. I mean, that said, there are, of course, there are other professions <clears throat> where there's a not dissimilar relationship between clients and professionals, accountants, for example, where there's, there's not perceived to be the same need. Well, some might say there is the same need, of course, because anybody who's ever been, been involved as I have in, in disputes about accountants fees may say there is exactly that same need, um, but there just isn't the, the, the similar solution proposed. Um, I mean, there are, of course, a whole range. We, we have much better general consumer protection legislation now than we did at the time of the Solicitors Act. Um, and indeed, of course, that's one of the overlaps. I mean, we now see in a lot of these solicitor client cases, um, we see for example, the Consumer Rights Act being thrown in there um, and these sort of points. So there's, there's, there's much better general consumer protection legislation. I, I can see the point that there may still be a need because of the peculiar relationship between solicitors and clients for some mechanism which allows clients, particularly lay consumer clients, to challenge the core fees that the solicitor's charging. But if, if that is right, um, if we accept that point, I think it needs to be simpler and much more easy to operate in practice. Um, and for example, uh, the whole issue about statute billing, I mean, why we have this complicated system whereby, frankly, in my experience, half the time, not even the solicitors, let alone the clients, properly understand whether the bills they've sent satisfy the requirements to be a bill which triggers the time limits under the Act. Surely there must be a simpler system. For example, and again, just playing devil's advocate, you could simply get rid of the whole idea of interim statute bills. You could mm. say it's simply not possible to have a statute bill during the lifetime of a, of a case. You can't trigger the time limits until the case gets to the end. In one stroke, that would remove a significant element of the uncertainty and, and the, the confusion that, that exists 
Um, or if you were to go the other way, you, you could simplify the process and, and have a, a simple set of rules set out in the statute or a regulation, which gave a sort of simple tick box set of criteria as to what you had to do to satisfy the requirements and that those boxes were either ticked or they weren't. Mm -hmm. So I, I can see the point that we may still need some kind of legislation of that kind, but I still maintain my position that what we have isn't fit for that purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't think yeah. there'd be too many people who disagree with you about that, Roger, but particularly in relation to the statute bill point, um, mm. because it is, it's an impossible situation. Uh, and I think, I think there's a lot to be said for saying, well, you, you know, the statute bill is the bill that comes at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and the, the problem for that is solicitors can't be sure of um, banking, if you like, or their interim bills. But, you know, with a certain amount of prudence, they should be able to work out how much they can bank and, and how much they, they can't. Um, and they shouldn't then face the problem of the bill being completely invalid because that's the real problem. Yeah. The, you know, you end up with a bill which is declared for one reason or another to be invalid and you've banked all the money and you've got to pay it back. Yeah. 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 So I, I, and of course, that's a less than ideal situation again for everybody. It's a nightmare for the solicitor, but it's also not great for the client because of course it means the client at that point still doesn't know what they're actually going to be billed for that case. And I'm sure we've all seen cases, I have, where actually solicitors have been able, because they were told their bill wasn't a statute bill, to go back, rake through the, 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 the whip uh, and present a bill at the end that's actually more than the bill they originally mm. presented. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a nightmare situation for everybody involved. Mm. Yeah. What about your take on it, Andy? Well, I, um, I, mean, I, I, share the, I share a sense of, a, a slight sense of unfairness, you know, on, on behalf of solicitors relative to other professions who don't seem to have the same, um, the, the same obstacles put in front of them. If if they if the reasonableness of their charges are ever uh, are ever challenged, um, and I do think that you know going back to some of the old 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 law, I mean the the whole idea that you could in that, that that large elements of bills could be struck out on a solicitor act assessment because um, unpaid disbursements were not marked as unpaid or something as un, as arcane as that is purely is utterly mad. And and that type of thing has got to go. I, I, but I haven't got an answer to the interim and final statute bill because if, you know if a case is running on for four years, what do you do? You know, you you've, you if if you really got to wait until the end before you you know and and then be subject to challenge over four years for uh, costs that everybody's forgotten about as you go along. Contrast that with bills every month that don't necessarily reveal a potential, uh, a, not so much overcharging, but unreasonable charges, because even the tasks or phases that you're involved with haven't come to an end. Um, and uh, likewise, starting challenges on bills before you've even finished the instructions seems to me to be a disaster from a client relations point of view. And if that's what, if that's what, uh, if that's the road that clients are pushed down in, down, then, um, you can understand why this thing's terrible. I think it's really good of Roger to volunteer to put it all right. I, I think that's just like, <laughs> I, yes, I'm, indeed, I'm, I'm not going, to, help I'm us never going to do that because, you know, we were so popular when we thought that, you know, we should get bills put into Excel um, that I think <laughs> I'm not ready for another, for another reform 
uh, a consultation or anything anywhere near it. I'm going to sit back and watch everybody else do it. Well, uh, having having seen that the, the fight that you guys uh, you, you got, and and of course our good friend Alex Hutton for for putting his name to to, to the report, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be putting my head over the parapet and volunteering no. for a Malaloo report, even if I was. No, asked. we've only just come out of our safe houses, actually, from that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's chicken of you, Roger. I think you should definitely be be up for it. Well. Uh, it's, it's definitely a hobby your... horse of mine anyway. And I know I was, I was interested to see that at the, um, there was the Cost Law Reports Conference. Uh, Andrew Gordon-Saker, the, the, the senior cost judge, was on shortly after I'd done one of my rants, as they're known, about the Solicitors Act. Um, and he, he'd missed that, thankfully. But he, he popped up and, and his starting theme was he thought the, the Solicitors Act was long overdue for, for reform. So, so it, it's, it, I think it's a view that's, that's fairly widely shared. The question is just whether there'll ever be any sort of uh, government interest in doing something about it. Yeah, no, I, th I think that that must be right. Um, moving on then to um, fixed recoverable costs, we have uh, Jackson, Jackson two or Jackson three's uh, recommendations in relation to that, which have been um, partly accepted by the government but not wholly, and um, we wait to see what's going to come about. I think a big uh, contentious area is is exclusions from the scheme. Um, what's your thoughts on that, Roger? Yes, well, I mean, it's it's coming. As far as I can see, um, having done quite a few cases in this area, the judiciary likes the, the concept of fixed recoverable costs. I, I think some practitioners like it. You know, if they can make models work well, um, then I think they can you know be reasonably successful. Um, from, from a sort of cost lawyer's perspective, the, the big issue is always whenever you have any exclusions or exceptions, um, they are the, the, the big battleground. And, and the more you have of those, uh, the greater the desire on both sides to, to, to you know, take advantage of those. The defendants want to, to prevent anything falling into the exclusions. The claimants want to, to rely on the exclusions. And in terms of the proposals coming forward, I'm sure we all know the, the, the basic outline of them. But again, it looks as though you know, the, the, the way it's phrased, we're going to have similar exclusions. We're going to have you know, uh, probably some sort of test of exceptionality. We're going to have different categories which are excluded. You're going to have issues about value. And all of that is, of course, just going to create a, a, a further battleground, I think, for, for people to, to argue about. Um, one of Jackson's categories was um, cases where there are particular reasons to assign to what he he designated as the intermediate track that would now be the um, the relevant part of this uh, existing track. Um, that did seem to me to be um, creating a, a fantastic battleground in terms of what should be in and what should be out, unless it was very carefully defined. Yeah, and there would be poor, you, know, you can imagine that... that, that um, CMCs, CMC, case management conferences, turning into a huge battleground as to what, what allocation you're going to have if all fast track cases are going to be in fixed costs and, and what is and what isn't a simple intermediate case. And, and of course, there's, I mean, there are ongoing arguments at the moment about some of the existing exceptions, such as what is and what isn't a, a clinical negligence case. And, and if ClinNeg is going to be brought into fixed recoverable costs, then again, there are going to have to be very careful definitions as to what actually, it may seem obvious, but what actually is and what isn't a, a clinical negligence case. 
Yes, I think you mentioned in, in our previous chat the um, hair um, laser removal um, yeah. of hair. You know, is that clean leg or is it not? Yeah, cosmetic um, treatments, but there, there are other ones, uh, care, care homes, um, aspects yeah. of treatment in care homes, these sort of things. That there are quite a lot of cases going on there at the moment. And, and at the moment, the existing definition of, of clinical negligence really doesn't say any more than it's a, a personal injury in a, in a clinical context. But then that just begs the question of what that means. Yeah. But although that's where the exclusions are, and that's, I suppose, is where um, our focus as um, people at the front line uh, tends to be, um, there must be quite a good argument for it being a good thing that a number of areas of costs are just taken out of the um, the everyday assessment process. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think so. I mean, certainly... I think it's probably a more effective way to try and deal with the, the perils and um, difficulties of detailed assessment than cost budgeting has been. Um, and, and, and of course, it's, it's it, fixed recoverable costs has, has notoriously been used on a few occasions as sort of the big stick to, to, to warn people that if budgeting didn't work and they didn't start behaving themselves on costs, then fixed costs was coming down the line. But I, I, I suspect it will probably be much more effective at, at removing the assessment type of satellite cost litigation than, than budgeting ever has been. Um, of course, and again, the, the devil with these things is always in the detail. Um, what are the figures going to be? And of course, the other issue with the figures is, is once the figures are set, are they going to be properly updated? Because uh, again, even if people can live with the figures once they first come in, as we've seen, time passes. And if these things aren't updated, then, then of course, it, it creates a further set of problems. But in, in principle, I, I think fixed recoverable costs is a is, is a good idea in certain areas. Okay. Um, of more interest to probably commercial clients um, who are watching uh, now, um, DBAs um, mm. obviously started off with huge amount of difficulty, very slow to take off, all sorts of concerns about them. Um, how would you assess the field at the moment? Yeah, well, just speaking from a practical level, um, up until the start of this year, DBAs were not being very widely used at all, in my experience. Um, I, I'd been asked to, to do a few. Uh, and I think the ones that we were asked to do, people were sort of approaching on a, on, a, on, a, on a risk basis, if I can put it that way. They knew they were taking a risk. But in, on some occasions, the potential reward was so significant that it was a risk that was perceived as being worth taking. Um, but for most people, those risks were, were too significant to, to regularly use a DBA. And then, of course, we, we had um, Lexlaw, the Lexlaw and Zaberi case, and, and things have changed. And I, from my experience, things have changed quite significantly. Uh, people are much more willing to use DBAs. Uh, I've had a lot, more, a, lot, a lot more queries about DBAs and drafting of DBAs. Um, I'm aware of firms that have you know, set up funding arrangements with third party funders tied to the use of DBAs, which they're, they're promoting quite heavily to clients. So I, I think this year is, has, has been a, a real sea change in my experience for the use of DBAs. Um, still not perfect by any means. Um, you know, it would be great if they, the government took the hard work that Nick Baker and Rachel Mulheron had done and actually used that. I mean, the work's all been done for them. Um, but certainly much better and, and much more widely used in my experience. Andy, have you been involved or is it really um, too far up the track for you? 
Um, yeah, a bit early um, because we uh, we don't we don't typically get involved in the same way that Roger does with being asked to draft DBAs, mm. and uh, and we do try and sort of slip the shoulder a little bit if something comes along that way. Um, but and and yes, well, unless something's going to be involved with with DBAs and budgeting, then that's the that's about the earliest we would hear about them. So. It, it, it we're, they would be later down the line, but but yes, I certainly got the I certainly got the distinct impression that um, there was definitely an appetite for DBAs, um, and there's a desire in the right case for, for 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 law firms to want to take them on, and they're sort of petrified of falling foul of you know technical issues and non-recovery, um, and you know quite right too. So if if the if if, if Lex Lawrence Uber has helped to clear the way, then there's definitely um, the, 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 there's, there's definitely a pent up sort of desire to try and get these uh, moving along, and uh, I think that's good. Um, unlike fixed recoverable costs. Now I know you didn't come to me on fixed recoverable costs because <laughs> because I use rude words, um, <laughs> but so so I'm not going to do that. And uh, uh, but but so no DBA is good, fixed recoverable costs bad. That's that's my in depth <laughs> nuanced <laughs> nuanced comment on it. Entirely free of self-interest as well. None whatsoever, I'm pleased <laughs> to say, as ever. None whatsoever. Well, I mean, I could be, I, I, I don't know, I suppose I, I could be um, snobby and say, well, we, you know, we don't do a lot of cases. Um, yeah. Our firm don't do a lot of cases. But, but you know, if, if that doesn't mean to say that I don't care about, you know, other people and the world in general. I absolutely do. And, you know, what's more, you know, if, if, if they all catch a, um, you know, a, a, a bad cold about it, then we will too. That's the way the world works. Um, that was been in, in the that's been in the fear in the past, hasn't it? From the introduction of, of fixed re recoverable costs way back. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Anyway, you don't want to hear me talking about the analogy with you know discretion to exceed county court scale one. So move <laughs> on. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about the exciting um, topic of uh, pre-action protocols instead. Then. Oh, Roger, as, as I said, there, there has been this new CJC uh, interim report. Um, a quick, uh, a quick word on that. Yes, I mean, the, 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 I think the consultation is still open, isn't it? It closes. Yes. It, 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 Christmas Eve, I think it closes, doesn't it? Um, for those of us who've got nothing better to do on Christmas Eve than than respond to a consultation on um, pre-action protocols. Um, nice way to build up to Christmas. Yes, I mean, there didn't seem to be a great deal of sort of flesh on the bones at the moment, really, for us to, to, to talk about um, in, in terms of costs. Um, there's, I see that there's a proposal, uh, obviously, more, more online. We're all going high tech, everything. I think the, they quite like the way the online portals mostly have been working for things like the low value um, RTA and EL and PL cases. And so I think there's an idea of, of a significantly greater use of sort of online portals for pre-action work. Um, from a cost perspective, uh, I saw, um, yeah, I mean, you guys may know a bit more about it than me, but I saw there was talk of a, a new summary costs procedure for pre-action settlement cases, which, which interestingly enough mentioned the, not just dealing with quantum disputes, but costs liability disputes, which sounded interesting, but I, I don't know quite what, what's meant by that, but it sounds like one maybe to keep an eye on for the for the future. It's quite hard to see how um, you can have liability disputes other than um, under the you know 
the, um, existing schemes, if you like. But it's hard to, to, to think of new ground there without changing the law somehow. Yeah. Um, um, I noticed one thing that um, one of the proposals is there'll be a formal stock take with joint lists of issues uh, 14 days after the conclusion of the um, the good faith steps, as they're called in the in the rec- in the recommendations. Um, I just see you know more costs and more um, front loading there. But is that um, a cynical view? Um, it, it, from my point of view, no. I mean, I I, I agree. It did sound as though the whole process is going to become much more formal and 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 regimented if, if that's followed through with specific, as you say, specific steps. And and you know, how are people going to do that unless they're incurring costs to to, to do it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so. And and it will generate arguments as to well, we, what is and what isn't agreed, or what is an issue and what isn't an issue, and all that sort of thing. And uh-huh. they've, they've attached a, a form as a sort of a draft proposal form for for this list of issues. But it seems to me that it's going to go way beyond that and really be quite a complex process potentially. Yeah, and of course you'll then also have arguments about compliance. You know, have people properly complied with all of these new requirements? And and again, from our perspective as as people interested in costs then you know cost sanctions presumably to try and make yeah. this effective there'll be cost sanctions built into this yeah. um, if you don't tick the right boxes at the right time and so you'll then have a string of of cost arguments flowing from that about what, what sanctions do and don't apply and, and more trips to the court of appeal for cost silks arguing about 100 pounds or something like that because Which they were not, so not much something i would ever encourage of course <laughs> Andy, and any, I, I, I can't uh, bypass you again after the last objection. Any, any no, views no. on any of this? <laughs> um, well, uh, no, I think the, I mean, I, mean I, I like us being bang up to date with um, uh, talking about uh, uh, ideas for consultation that have come out about pre-action protocols. But I, I mean, I, 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 I utilise the same arguments everybody else does about uh, in, in terms of. Um, uh, people not following pre-action protocols and watch horrible things that should happen to them if they haven't, uh, and the opposite if we're on the opposite side. Um, and uh, as a as an exercise in good practice, I think they're I, I think they're they are the right sort of guidelines. But I, I don't think that they should turn into too much of a stick to beat people with. To be quite honest, because it's so fact sensitive in terms of the um, in, in terms of the attitude of the protagonists in a in a fight that's looming um and i don't like pre-action protocols weaponized any more than i like compulsory adr weaponized um and it is and i find that element a bit dull as well uh, when people uh, look to get involved with the cost building exercise for interim uh, adr that you all know in the certain circumstances of a case is not going to solve it yeah. um you know, really, that's what courts are for, aren't they? To settle disputes between people. It's a terribly old-fashioned view, but um, yeah, pretty rules, I think. Yeah, yeah, but, but <laughs> you know, but, but it, it sort of ignores. It, it seems to well, it, it seems to ignore. You know, our daily experience in practice, which is that the, the law firms we work for and their clients, well, the, certainly the law firms we work for, work incredibly hard to try and distill the issues and try and get rid of cases and try and settle things and try not to go the whole way. And most cases don't go the whole way and they don't go to trial and they, they, they yeah. do settle early. Um, and it's the same with detailed assessment as well. Um, 
So it, it, it's like a lot of these things in terms of it's, it's even, it, it, you know, expanding it back to whether budgeting is working. Um, well, clearly, budgeting does probably add to aspects of detailed assessment if it goes all the way. But it ignores the hundreds and thousands of cases that don't go to detailed assessment because yeah. they were budgeted. Yeah. Amongst other things. Um, and it's the same with pre-action protocol. You know, when it works, it must be great. And guess what? The courts don't see them. Yeah. yeah. Well, if I can bring it. Actually, I'd, I'd need to... Um... Because, of course, what, what certainly from my perspective, what we tend to see is that there's the stuff that fights, the stuff where there is a problem. Yeah. And, and if that's your experience, particularly budgeting, that, you know, it's having a real effect because things just aren't being contentious because they have been budget, budgeted. That, that, that's really interesting to hear. Well, I mean, I think the, it's more that um, uh, I, I, I suppose that there's a, there's a smarter argument these days in a budgeted case. That, you can, that lends itself to a form of ADR by negotiation or, or, or even mediation of um, if there's an overrun on budget and isn't there, isn't there always, um, by how much, as opposed to let's throw it away and, you know, do everything line by line and forget that budgeting ever happened. You know, that, that, the, the, the type of argument. Yeah, there's a structure to it. Yeah. And, you know, let's, let's have a look at the drivers to budget overrun and what, what effect would that really have on a case? And it, you know, in my experience, it helps um, in those situations. That's me. So, and, and ADR, you know, is the is the same issue, but uh, sorry, not ADR. Uh, Pre-action protocol, the same issue, but earlier. Um, I mean, I I have a lot of our instructions these days are almost to try and work out a pre-action protocol that doesn't exist for detailed assessment. How do we put forward details of people's costs to the other side in such a way that, that it will actually mean something to them um, that falls short of a full bill that we can have some sort of sensible informed negotiation about? And what would that look like? And what would that cost as opposed to trench warfare leading to detailed assessment in 15 months' time or something like that? You know, and that's, the, you know, that's our world most of the time, I have to say. Um, and should that in, in itself be a, a subject of a recommendation um, on pre-action protocols, you know, the cost procedure? Um, I used to think yes, I now think no. Uh, you know, I, I, I just think that, that that's how... Um, I think it's the best way forward, but it would I, I wouldn't necessarily want it to fall down the route of, of, uh, uh, of having to follow a particular structure and tick boxes. Happy, happier to work it out among yourselves, like among the, the cost lawyers. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It is, um, obviously, it's a much smaller group than solicitors as a whole. So in a sense, you know, that, that's got a, a drive behind it, which, um, which probably helps. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's really, it's a, it's a small question that's got a big complicated answer, which is, um, if you're going to produce a schedule instead of a bill, what level of particularity yeah. should it should it have and how useful is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, as, if you want to just, just having a pre-action, pro, well, having a pre-action, it would be just, a, I think, about as popular as as, uh, as as solicitors at reform leadership to say, let's suggest a pre-action protocol for detailed assessment. 
Um, and so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, but uh, I, I, we have it in we have it in mind in terms of of you know of, of how we go about things. Yeah. The, the idea is out there now, Andy. That's the that's the danger. <laughs> once, once these things are voiced, before you know it, they're getting a life of their own. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. Well, you know, give it another five years, maybe. <laughs> if if you want a um, an international perspective on all of this, uh, on on all these things we've been talking about, basically, which is reform of the civil justice system. Italy has just been given a shed load of money by the uh, European Union on a number of conditions, one of which is that it tidies up its uh, civil justice system. The average time for a civil case to be resolved in Italy is seven and a half years. And with all the reforms in place, they're hoping that it will get down to five years. So if that gives, you know, puts it all in perspective, because that actually takes me back to three wolf days when you know the times for for civil litigation were of uh, Italian proportions, I think it's fair to say in many many cases. So, um, however one, whatever view you take, if you like, of of, of Wolf and Ever and Jacks and all the things that have followed, it, it certainly has made a massive difference. And uh, you know, I think I think we should be grateful for that. Um, finally, then, on a, I don't know if it's a lighter note or not, but um, we've discussed in our various uh, online talks over the last couple of years um, the effect of the pandemic and the way in which the courts were coping with it, the way in which the costs office is coping with it, and the way in which practitioners are coping with it. Um, do we feel there is uh, an opening up now? Do we feel that there's a possibility of a return to more um, actual hearings as opposed to a lot of stuff being online? What, what's the What's the view in the profession there? Uh, well, I'd be interested to hear what Andy says, because obviously he'll have a sort of slightly wider view and see probably a, a greater number of cases. F from my point of view, I thought we were heading towards an opening up. I, I had quite a few hearings in my diary from October onwards, which said you know, this will be an in-person hearing. Um, uh, and in practice, as they've got closer and closer, they've nearly all reverted back to being video hearings. Um, and I suspect, given what's happened over the weekend and given the way things seem to be heading um, probably in the next few weeks as we build up to Christmas, I, I, I suspect that's going to continue. So, so I have got a, a, a couple of in-person hearings in principle between now and Christmas. I'll be interested to see if they stay like that. But I, I think the, the general feeling coming off the back of the, the summer that we were going to be looking in the latter part of this year to things getting back to normal doesn't in practice from my point of view seem to be seem to be happening it still seems to be mostly video hearings mostly remote meetings and i suspect that's going to continue into the into the um new year and and i mean the the cancellation of those hearings obviously predates any concern about the south african omicron yeah. variant so is it your view possibly that People are really rather attached to the way they've been working over the last couple of years and will keep it going um, beyond, uh, well, beyond pandemic times, if you like, or beyond serious pandemic time. Well, I think there have been some good aspects of it. I mean, certainly when it comes to things like um, conferences and things of that kind, I, I think it's made life you know, m much easier, particularly when you've got overseas clients and, and matters of that kind. Um, when it comes to hearings, 
my general experience is some judges seem to like video hearings for some things, some, some don't. Um, uh, so, and, and obviously there's a, it seems to me there is a, there is a continuing place for, for some of these things. There are some hearings which suit uh, video hearings much better. Uh, from my experience, actually, I think appeals tend to work quite well as video hearings. Still not quite the same as standing there in front of the, you know, the three judges and, and being tag teamed and, and, and torn to pieces in person, but they can still do a pretty effective job of that over a video. And you, know, you have a well-paginated, well-prepared single bundle that everybody's got. There's no handing up of papers. There's no cross-examination. Um, so that, those sort of things in my experience tend to work quite well by video. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, have a problem with that carrying on of other hearings. And I'd be interested to hear what Andy has to say, particularly detailed assessments. I think that thing of being in the room and you know having having the papers there and and also the the, the sort of the, the things that ease the process the little chats in the corridors with your opponent before you go in and the the hitting on a point halfway through a hearing and saying to the judge can we just have five minutes outside for a quick chat those things are much more difficult to achieve i, I think by video andy yes i i agree with that um i our experience in lockdown is is a sort of game of two halves i think i think most of the um the the first year the 2020 year of it was everybody being being you know exceptionally well disposed towards trying to make everything work and make it the best of it and there's a novelty aspect to it and pleasant surprises about how well um how, how well they worked in terms of hearings um even detailed assessments, um, which were, uh, which are actually quite tiring in a strange way um, uh, compared to in person, um, but effective and they work. Um, and then the second, lock, the 2021 lockdowns and even coming, you know, until people started coming out of them, uh, just found it to be a drag and missing those little bits of glue that, that, that Roger's talking about in terms of the the bits you can do in between and on during during uh, you know short adjournments and before and just after with opponents, professional colleagues that you may bump into in the corridors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Little chats with the cost judge afterwards about some other matter or or a general point or something, which um, which uh, I, I really miss. And I mean, I think the example that I'd give actually is you know outside of hearings, you know. Because of uh, because of the pandemic, we actually hadn't met as a firm altogether in person, face to face, um, from August twenty twenty through to about three weeks ago, and we had it three weeks ago, and we you know we had a sort of you know like a formal meeting where we all got together in an office and and, and did stuff for, for 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 two hours, followed by a lunch, and. Um, it's almost. It's only when you do it again that you realise how much you miss it, and yeah. how much you and, and 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 what you have been missing, and having then broken the ice and done it, you want to do it again, you know. Uh, and and so I I can see a uh, I can see a return to some form of normality stroke hybrid arrangement with um, more face to face, more more meetings with colleagues more in-person hearings but it's so fragile I mean I think we would have had a we would have had a hugely different conversation about this 
in the middle of last week. Yeah. Before the South Africa variant comes along. And the minute it comes along, despite the fact that I was feeling, pers- you know, speaking personally, you know, I was feeling, well, perhaps we are seeing the end of this, you know, having a booster jab three weeks ago sort of stuff. So, you know, I feel top protected, you know, in the sense, that, you know. And then this thing comes along, you think, oh, Christ, you know, we're back to square one again. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's just horrible. And also, I mean, uh, I mean, it's a not, not really a point for this, this session, but I'll say anyway, um, going up on the tubes is absolutely distressing in terms of the amount of people that, you know, willfully don't have a mask on, you know. And it's almost like they're eyeing the carriage, you know, to sort of, you know, to try and say, you know, come on, call me out then, I want the route, you know. It's yeah. um, it, it's uh, not a nice experience. Yeah. You said um, after your recent, um, well, the first meeting, three weeks mm. ago, you, you could do with more of this. But do you think on a long-term basis, more of it, but not exclusively that? So a bit more, but still a lot of home working, a lot of um, yes. distance, uh, hearings, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, it does seem to be in slightly poor taste, so we have to caveat it to say, you know, the good things that have come out of the pandemic. But the, the, um, uh, uh, the, the acceleration towards working paperless, uh, yeah. and uh, e-bundles, we'd be waiting forever for it if it hadn't been for this. And yeah. uh, that won't go. I, I can't see how that's ever going to go back, and nor should it. I, th- yeah. I think that's been a massive difference from my point of view. Just the paper paper has gone. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure we all know it, we, we used to spend our lives in rooms where I mean, one of my colleagues in chambers, quite literally in his room, he had effectively internal walls built in it with boxes. Mm. And it was like a maze working your way through to try and get to his desk. And, and it's just, it has completely gone. I, I think I've had maybe two boxes of papers delivered in the course of the last two years. Everything mm. is digital and it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yes, it does. I mean, it's not, I, I mean, I, I, I've got to say, is uh, I, I don't find it that easy to manage. But then again, I didn't feel, I didn't find masses of boxes of papers that easy to manage either. If I, <laughs> So it's just different and broadly is better. Um and, you know, we're, we're again back to the dreaded, you know, front loading. And it is. Um, but it will get better and it must be persevered with. Um, but, you know, preparing electronic bundles for uh, uh, for detailed assessment hearings um, is a big job. You, you really benefit from doing it, you know, for, from it. But, you know, let's be under no illusion. It takes a long time. Yeah. Well, on that note, which is... <laughs> Partly down and partly up, I think. Uh, I think generally up, actually. I think, you know, the fact that there has been this sea change in, in handling of documents as a result of the pandemic is, is definitely an up. Uh, and on that note, I think we'll leave you. Um, there won't be another of these, I think, before Christmas. But uh, so wish all those who are watching a, a very happy Christmas and uh, New Year. Um, and we'll sign off with many thanks to Roger for joining us with his insights into these matters. Thanks, Roger.